Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. You can also find me on Instagram at I Love That Movie Podcast, and we have a Patreon. Uh, the show is always free, but if you want to support us on there, you can. That's at patreon.com slash I Love That Movie. Uh, and if you know, if you if you enjoy this show, but you want a little more, essentially, if you join up for my Patreon, you also get a bonus episode of what I'm watching that week. Uh, so my thoughts on, you know, right now, I don't know, Righteous Gemstones, Peacemaker, etc. Um, and so we have a lot of fun on there. There's also a lot of interviews. You know, we covered The Mandalorian and quite a few other popular shows on there. So if you want to check that out, you can. And I want to take a moment to thank my top patrons. And they are Chris Balga, Jeff Whitman, Philip Barker, and Michael Cross. Thank you guys so much for keeping the lights on. Last plug, if you like what you hear today on this show, please subscribe and rate the show it does help new listeners find us uh so i've got a guest on the podcast today a friend of a, a pretty familiar voice that you've heard on here before chase mckinney's uh this is eric christopherson hello uh eric thank you so much for coming on the show uh why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to the audience yeah um i'm eric i uh i'm a i was a I'm a teacher. I was a college professor for about 10 years. I, um, I'm teaching middle school now, but I'm a big film fan. Uh, I've been a fan for a long time. I, um, at the last job that I was at, um, I was the host of a local foreign film series that uh, was created as part of, um, like, by the Chamber of Commerce to try to, like, revive arts wow. in the area. I remember you talking about that last yeah, time. My, college president asked me if I wanted to do it and I said yes yes I want to do that so um I hosted that I had a partner we co-hosted it did that for about two years but I I left that job I moved to Texas in July um I know that's still going I know Nathan's doing a good job there but that was a lot of fun we just got together we I introduced the movie we watched it talked about it a little bit afterwards they were usually 30 to 50 people there and we had a good time doing that man there's somebody here in the like local dallas film scene that has like a lot of classic films on like 35 millimeter and they invite like people over and watch it at their house and i'm like always like oh man I've, i i haven't done that yet but it's, it sounds so exciting uh so i love the idea of that and, th and the last time you were on i think we talked about vampire right Yes, we did. Yeah, that was really fun. So we kind of have a, a different movie today. You know, if this is your first time listening, I always have my guests pick the movie. So what, what movie did you choose to talk about today? I chose the 1957 movie directed by 
one of the greatest of all time, Akira mm-hmm. Kurosawa, uh, Throne of Blood. Yeah. Um, this was my first time seeing this movie. Okay. Yeah, I know. It's um, I'm ashamed. But <laughs> no, don't be. Don't be. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I- I've seen Akira Kurosawa films. I have not seen this one. So it was really, I really, really enjoyed it um, quite a bit. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your experience when when did you first see this movie um yeah so i i had seen a lot of course not a lot of course a few before like obviously seven samurai and rashomon mm-hmm. are the two big ones yeah. that i think most people have seen <laughs> right i saw those on tcm lots of times but um i took a year off between college and grad school um and this would have been like 2010 2011 and I was not really doing much. I wasn't working. I wasn't going to school. I was just sitting in my mom's basement at home. And I basically spent that entire year watching movies. I probably watched five, 600 movies that year. Wow. And what I, I mean, I watched all the best picture winners in a row. At that point, we were up through like the King speech. Um, and then I would just like pick a director and I would watch a bunch of their movies in a row. And like Kurosawa That's a good was idea. one of the directors that I picked and I was watching a bunch of them in a row. Uh, this was one of them. And I, I mean, I really loved it right away. The first time I saw it, it was just like fantastic. Really good. So before I continue, I do want to share with you guys that I, I do not do a spoiler free show. We don't do like our thoughts spoiler free. And then, I mean, maybe I should, but maybe I'm just too lazy to, I don't know. It's free-flowing conversation, so it's kind of hard. Um, I would really recommend watching this movie first before listening to the rest of this. <laughs> so, you know, pause here, go watch the movie. If you're still with us, here's the synopsis of the film. Uh, returning to their lord's castle, samurai warriors Washizu and Miki are waylaid by a spirit who predicts their futures. When the first part of the spirit's prophecy comes true, Washizu's scheming wife, Asaji, passes him uh presses him sorry presses him to speed up the rest of the spirit's prophecy by murdering his lord and usurping his place director kira kurosawa's resetting of william shakespeare's macbeth in feudal japan is one of his most acclaimed films yeah i was gonna before you added that last sentence in there i was like (laughs) if that sounds familiar somehow there's a reason yeah i mean i and, and plus like macbeth is i feel like it's like the most popular or one of the most popular it's like the most epic to me uh, or the most exciting like uh you know we have shakespeare in the park in dallas and there used to be two locations and i used to live in an apartment that was literally where they were um they would show a lot of shakespearean plays in in you know good weather and so we'd all go out there and have a picnic and drink wine and you know watch shakespeare it was just the best way in my opinion to enjoy it um, and Macbeth was probably one of my favorite ones that they would do. Um, and so, yeah, uh, I have a couple of quick facts I want to share in, in when I was kind of researching about this film. Uh, originally, Akira Kurosawa was planning on building, you know, a facade castle for the film, but this proved to be an impractical step prompting building a full castle section or building full castle sections to use in shooting. These were built with the help of the United States Marines who were based in the area. Yeah. Yep. Um, they shot this basically on location around Mount Fuji, right in Japan, right? Mm-hmm. It, 
Kurosawa chose this particular location because it was foggy, right? There was, it was like, uh-huh. they had, they didn't have to make as much fog as they would normally have to because there was just natural fog. And like fogginess is usually a key feature when you see like Macbeth also, right? Yes, yes, it There's is. a lot of fog. <laughs> uh, the story, the story is based, as we said earlier, on Shakespeare's early 17th century play Macbeth, which was in turn based on a medieval Scottish legend. So, in case you don't know enough about Macbeth, you know we'll give you a, a couple quick facts here and there. To, to add to that, Akira Kurosawa believed that Scotland and Japan in the Middle Ages actually shared social problems and that these lessons were for the present day. Moreover, Macbeth could serve as a cautionary tale um, contemplating Ikiru. Well, I mean, I, th- I think Macbeth as a cautionary tale is always relevant. I mean, for sure. It's, it's always going to be relevant. Like the idea mm-hmm. of just wanting power and what you're willing to do to get it, what you're willing to do to hold on to it. I think that's, that, that's, that idea is never going to like go away. And I think in today's world, I think there are a lot of lessons that we can learn from that idea. For sure. And I think what really sticks with me about the themes in Macbeth and in this is is the idea of like paranoia and how, you know, this everything happens in this film because of a premonition they get, kind of like, well, like in Macbeth. And as that they give this, the, this anxiety, like more and more power because of an evil act that they commit, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And I feel like that's why, like, there's a lot of, you know, cautionary tales or a lot of stories about, you know, revenge gone wrong or being greedy. But like the way that this main character is so directly responsible for his own demise, is just there's just something that just always stays really relevant about it and engaging. Yeah. And and you can you can transport Macbeth into so many different um, situations like you can make it a samurai tale. There's lots exactly. of different versions of Macbeth that are like gangst set in the gangster world where somebody mm-hmm. murders the boss and and comes up, but then they have to commit more murders to stay in charge and stay in power. Right? Right. There's just so many different things you can do with this story of Macbeth. And I mean, I feel like those are some of my favorite types of stories too. I mean, those I think they've just they're universally appealing, like you said, when it kind of centers around power and greed. There's just something you know, that's relatable in pretty much any setting, like you said. Um, did you have any quick facts you wanted to share before we kind of dive in? I did, yeah. Um, so um, this is the um, the first of three Shakespeare adaptations that Kurosawa made in his career. He originally wanted to make this right after he made Rashomon. Like, he, he made mm. Rashomon, and this was the film he wanted to make next. But um, because of the Orson Welles version that had just come out, right? I don't know if you've seen the Orson Welles version of Macbeth from, no, the, late, from the late 40s, but it's fantastic. And I mean, it's obvious it's Orson Welles. It's going to be good, right? Um, sure. But yeah, that movie is fantastic. Um, but because that had just come out, uh, Kurosawa delayed making this movie for several years. Wow. Because he didn't want two versions of Macbeth to be out at the same time. That makes sense because you know I'm I'm sure there are some comparisons, but if they came out at the same time, that would be you know you'd be comparing it minute to minute. <laughs> yeah, and then the other two movies that he made, he made a movie called The Bad Sleep Well in 1960, which is based on Hamlet, but it's set in like 
the modern, right, the modern, like, 1960, like, corporate world, right? And it's based on that Hamlet story of revenge and, you know, the father that was murdered, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. and then he also made a movie in 1950, 1985, excuse me, not 55, 1985 called Ran, which is based on King Lear. Wow, okay. And that is a samurai epic. And that's an epic in every sense of the word. It's like three hours long. It's shot in his wide Toho scope, which is the same thing as CinemaScope. And it's just in bright color, which is something you Mm. don't think of when you think of Kurosawa. You think of all this great black and white imagery. But then Ran is just shot in color, and it's like stunning. Nice. Okay, I have to check these out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, Ran is fantastic. Not to say that The Bad Sleep Well isn't, but like this one and Ran, I think, are definitely more of my favorites over that one. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I had was, um, you know, we call this this movie Throne of Blood, but I always find it interesting, like how we translate foreign titles into, oh, okay. into English, right? Yeah. So, you know, sometimes we do a literal translation. We just translate it exactly as it is, right? Sure. Sometimes we call the movie by its foreign title. We don't even decide to translate it. I'm thinking of, like, La Strada. That's all we call Mm -hmm. it, right? Um, But if you're looking at the actual Japanese title, a literal translation would be Castle of the Spiderweb. I see. Okay. The literal translation. And and I kind of actually like that title. It's like it's about like the place and the setting and like the mystery and all the things that happen in like the castle and the surrounding woods. And I feel like the spider maybe from the woman that you see with it's you know spindling something mm-hmm. perhaps. I don't know. Yeah, I could see how like that's more representative of what uh the title you know what happens in the movie because throne of blood i mean first of all we it it, it makes sense but it is purely figuratively because we don't see blood yeah really there's no blood and there's, there's, <laughs> there's no, no blood. Th- there's no throne either yeah you're right okay but, you know, so, it's but, but it's a concept like, i think that we understand better maybe yeah, the concept of it yeah but i don't yeah. know um where you watch this if you watch this on hbo max i know a lot i did of, i did yeah a lot of like good, there's a good lot plug. of really good movies you can watch on it on HBO, HBO Max. Max. You can, <laughs> yeah. yes. Um, if you have HBO Max, the Criterion Collection, a lot of it's on there. And I can't stress enough if you love movies, you should get an HBO Max subscription. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, mean, I, I actually I own the Criterion Blu-ray version of this. I would have been shocked if you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but like like if you watch this on HBO Max, all the time they just refer to this castle, like the main castle as forest castle huh that's the only thing they call it is forest castle so there's different translation as well wow but but like if you watch the criterion blu-ray at least the version that i have it's always referred to as the spider web castle which makes it almost like they decided the title yeah it's almost like they decided like that sounds silly in english so we'll change it but it's like yeah but then you lose the nuance of what it really means yeah but, and then if you just call it forest castle that sounds really generic it does <laughs> <laughs> like i understood that it was important but yeah it's like 
that's strange that they would change the title. Eh, that's always something you're going to run into, though, with, you know, with things that are subtitled is, oh, there's inevitably different versions, you know? Yeah. Um, I've run into that with, with other things that I, well, I'm just going to say it, you know, when I watch anime. <laughs> okay. I mean, not to compare, you know, the generic anime that I watch to something as important as this in Japanese cinema, but it is my frame of reference of something I watched subtitled. And, you know, sometimes there's different versions of that too, especially when they don't have it in America and you're watching a bootleg of it. Not that I would have ever done that, but um, <laughs> you, you watch a whole series and, and get a very different version of it than what we get once we get the license. So I, mm -hmm. I, I understand there being different versions. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess one last little fact that I had is, um, this movie was like influenced by Japanese no theater, which like I'm not mm. I'm not I'm not an expert on Japanese theater. If you have any listeners that are, if I say anything wrong, please correct me. But like it's like a highlight it's a stylized form of theater, right? Where you have mm -hmm. like actors are doing very specific motions to to represent very specific things. Yeah. And the actors wear masks all the time that like depict characters stereotypes and emotions and so like kurosawa showed a bunch of these pictures of these no masks to all of his actors and he said this is the the facial expression that i want you to try and represent right these i'd noticed that not that i like even knew that was the name for it but i just noticed that sometimes their faces kind of looked like masks mm-hmm like the wife and especially the wife and the the main character mm -hmm. yeah. because of that extreme expression he's making like almost the whole film but the wife too i mean even the way her face is kind of made up it sort of looks like a mask mm -hmm. the expression she uses sometimes she's barely moving her face yeah and then the way she walks too like there's the moment yeah. where she's going to like get the dagger so they can and to get the dagger so they can kill their the lord. She's like walking really slow and she's dragging her feet. And that's like yeah. typical of no theater to like represent like somebody who's about to do something evil as they drag their feet and walk really slow. I love that. Like and I've seen like clips of or like video clips like on in different places like TikTok or YouTube or wherever where I've seen like not really knowing what exactly they were referencing but seeing people you know in, in japan in sort of like a costume and, and making really specific motions and stuff like that so i feel like i know what you're talking about a little bit but yeah definitely not an expert uh but i think that that's so cool because i mean when you think about it this is based on macbeth which is a play and so it's kind of like the movie sort of evokes a play as well and it gives the whole thing this heightened sense of reality um that is really, I, I don't know, it just adds a layer to it. I really enjoyed that about it. Yeah. That's a good point. That was all, that uh, was all like the facts that I had. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, do you want to talk a little bit about the cast or do you want to kind of transition more into talking about your favorite scenes? Yeah, we can talk about the cast. Okay. I'll let you take it away then. Oh, I mean, I think obviously <laughs> I think you have to start with, Tashiro Mifone here. Yeah. Right? I watched I mean, a oh go ahead. No, I mean the guy is just a legend, right? Of For sure. He's probably he's like he's like our Humphrey Bogart, right? The biggest star yeah. they probably ever had. 
Yeah, and I really, um, I really enjoyed. I watched some behind the scenes stuff, and I saw a short where they talked about that arrow scene <laughs> and how they filmed that and how they stuck him with all these needles that were like, um, they said the the thickness of like phonograph needles, mm-hmm. and how just game he was for that, and how I think they did it all basically in one take, and then you know, talking about all of them getting drinks afterwards and just, you know, being like relieved that it's over wow, well, <laughs> and you, just, I don't know. It was fun to, you to talk see about that the arrow scene. Like, like from everything I've read, they were shooting real arrows at him. Yeah. Like, but they put something in the w- tips yeah, so that it would stick into him. And then he had to wear like double layers and like the arrows were like on a string, but I mean, they full force, like flung them all at him at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, it's I mean like, that's just. I mean, he's seemed, known. For sounded like, very dangerous. It, it sounded very dangerous, like something they probably wouldn't do these <laughs> days. <laughs> you know, you could do that seventy years ago, right? Yeah, and it's like I guess they didn't use, like you said, they were real arrows. I guess they only replaced the tips, but replacing the tips with really big needles that are big enough for like a phone, like you know, a record player essentially, or bigger than that, really, for a phonograph, but. That's terrifying sounding. (laughs) And then they had to be like all over him and around his head. So he had to kind of like, I mean, not move, right? Like he had to like know exactly where to flail and all that as well. So yeah, just goes to show he was dedicated. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, he's known for being like a really physical actor, bringing that physicality Mm -hmm. to all of his performances. I mean, I think you see that in like, he made 16 movies with Akira Kurosawa in his career. He was like the main player, one of the main players in basically all of like the big movies that you think of from Akira Kurosawa. Yeah, and I think didn't he start as an extra in the yeah. first movie that he was yeah, in? Yeah, uh, the first movie he was in was called Drunken Angel, and it he was like his role was really originally small, but because he was like so impressive on the set, they like were rewriting the script like while they wow. were filming to like give him more scenes and make him. A bigger role in the movie yeah i think he had a background in japanese theater first and then yeah he got discovered that way as an extra mm-hmm. but yeah he's in i mean he's in rashomon he's the bandit yep. he's in seven samurai he's the the wannabe samurai that tags along he just stands out so much like he does y- you know you may not remember everybody's name but you definitely remember his <laughs> right absolutely um I mean, if you look at like, uh, um, like the character of Noriyoshi, Noriyashu, Nor Noriyashu, yeah. I, if I, I'm gonna pronounce some of these things no, wrong. No, it's okay. <laughs> and my, it's sometimes, uh, yeah, I can kind of be presented differently, but I think on mine, I think it might be Noriyasu. Noriyasu. Okay, that that's right. Right, but the actor, um, Takashi Simura. Yeah, I think Takashi Shimura, maybe. Yeah, so he's our. I'm he's sure our, I'm not saying it right either. Yeah, yeah, he's <laughs> he's our Macduff character, right? If you're familiar, mm-hmm. if you're familiar with the play Macbeth, he's uh-huh. the Macduff character, um, who's like the main antagonist. He's the person who in the in the play. I mean, it's 400 years old. I'll I'll spoil the play. Right? <laughs> yeah, I think you can, I think you're safe. Yeah, he's the character who who kills Macbeth in the play, not in mm-hmm. this movie, but in the play. And that Got actor, it. that actor, he's you know he is big in the Kurosawa movies too. He's 
he's the main character of Seven Samurai, like mm-hmm. the the one the first person that they hire who then goes and puts together the rest of the team. Right. Um he's who trains all the villagers, like the main character there. Um he's the main char- character in Ikiru, which is also a great Kurosawa movie that I would rec- definitely recommend everyone watching. Um he plays the woodcutter in Rashomon, so he's like the person that tells his story first. Right? So he's all over the Kurosawa movies. He's a big one. Yeah. Um like uh our character who plays Miki, Mickey, Mickey, however you want to say it. Um no way am I going to be able to pronounce this guy's name. I'll attempt. Minoru Ch- Ch- Chiaki. Okay, sure, that sounds funny. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's uh, he plays our Banquo character who's like the person that meets the witches right with Macbeth and they hear uh-huh. the prophecy together, but then Macbeth becomes like scared of him in a sense and ends up having him killed he's this guy as an actor he's all over kurosawa movies as well he's in seven samurai he's in rashomon he's one of the two like main characters in the hidden fortress as well oh i don't know if you've seen yeah i've seen that yeah Yeah. so like the two like peasants that are really like who the movie is right he plays one of those two Oh, okay. Yeah, that is definitely ringing a bell now. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, the only other person that like I'll mention is like our Lady Macbeth character. Yeah, Lady right? Asagi. I Lady think her Asagi. name is Isuzu yeah. Yamada. Yeah, I didn't really recognize mm-hmm. her from anything. I mean, I looked on her IMDb page. She's got a ton of stuff. Like, I mean, it's like over 100 credits long on her IMDb page. But I like, wonder if yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Like she was in Yojimbo, right? If you've seen Yojimbo, which is mm-hmm. like the thing that Fistful of Dollars is based off of, right? But I don't recognize her from that movie. I um, I really, really like the character she portrays and the way she portrays it because if you haven't seen Macbeth, like if you haven't seen a play or, or read it, um, the the female lead in that is more, I mean, she's like more extreme. Um, she's very passionate. She's very, you know, her, her intentions are, are obvious, but what's cool about, uh, this female lead is that they're not to me, you know, like, I think she's a lot, presents a lot more meekly and, you're not really quite sure what her true intentions are. I mean, she definitely is part of, you know, our main character's downfall, but I think it's in a much more subtly manipulative way. And that to me makes the character more interesting and more nuanced. No, I, I absolutely would agree. I love the way she plays the lady Macbeth. I'm just going to call her lady Macbeth. Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I know. I'm like, I'm also not an expert on Shakespeare. Oh, I, I feel, I feel like I, no, I feel like I'm a, I don't want to call, I say I'm like the biggest expert, but I'm a, I'm a big Shakespeare fan. I've. Okay. Okay. Well then we'll rely on you. (laughs) Read like, I've read almost all the plays. I've seen uh, like a bunch of the movies that are based on them. I, I feel like I can hold my own in any discussion about Shakespeare. Um, but yeah (laughs) like the the way she plays like exactly like you said um lady Macbeth is a 
very vocal character. She is very much like portrayed as being in your face and aggressive towards Macbeth and really, really pushing him because there are mm-hmm. lots of moments where he's like, I'm not doing this. You can't talk me into it. And she's like, Oh yes, I can. Right. And um, but- like, I'm going to go back to the, sorry, I cut you off there. Oh, no, go for it. The Orson Welles version from 1948. Um, and I believe the actress's name is just Jean Clemens. I, I that could be wrong. She was one of the Mercury theater players that Orson Welles had. Um, she gives a fantastic performance, but it is nothing like what you see here. Um, she's, yeah. Yeah. Like she's the whole time she's manipulating Macbeth or, or Washizu here. Um, she's just sitting down, right? She's not moving. She's just sitting down. She's still, she's talking really quiet and like she's just throwing his words back at back at him and manipulating mm-hmm. him and it's really really impressive. Yeah, and she yeah, she doesn't look him in the eye, which you know some of that I was like I could be I don't know, also cultural in some ways like she, you know, really cannot come up against him, oppose him or directly even converse with him. Um so she kind of has to keep her head down a little bit and just kind of and and it also could be speaking to the, his personality, you know. She knows she can't just have a frank discussion with him, so she has to tiptoe around and and sort of get her attentions across differently. But, you know, it's by the end she pays such a big price for what she does, uh, in the form of it. It feels like karma, right? Um, she completely changes as a character towards the end. But I I don't know. I just I I like the way that she, it, it just. I think it's it, it's easy, not easy, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, a passionate performance is impressive, but it's even more impressive to me the way she's able to, you know, get her point across and also the way her lines are written, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, do you want to talk a little bit about some of your favorite scenes? I feel like we're yeah. tiptoeing in that arena. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, when the movie opens, almost like you know, you think of some Shakespeare plays do with a, like a chorus coming out mm-hmm. or somebody walking on stage and giving a little speech before the play actually starts. And and in a sense, those those things in Shakespeare were designed to like make the crowd stop talking. So they knew yeah. like, hey, the play's about to start. <laughs> and so if you didn't hear him, that was fine, right? I'm thinking of like, obviously the Romeo and Juliet where the whole thing mm-hmm. is spoiled right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But like we open on like just this foggy landscape where there's nothing there. You can't see anything. And like this song plays over it. And it's like, here was a mighty fortress where there lived a poor warrior who was murdered by ambition. Right. And his spirit is still walking. Mm-hmm. It really like sets the tone for what you're yeah. about to see. And then ominous ghosts, mm-hmm. you know, and then the movie prophetic. also closes with that same that exact same line and the exact same scene right like mm. you know empty land ominous foggy play playing the exact same song and so there's like this really neat bookend yeah wow mm-hmm. and then i guess i guess the first scene you know is not that special but like really probably my favorite scene of the whole movie other than the arrows, which we'll save to the end, right? Which we've already kind of talked about a little bit. (laughs) Um, 
is like that opening scene where we take our two main characters, I'll say, you know, Macbeth and Banquo or Washizu and Miki, where they're like lost in the forest around the castle. They've been called back and they're just like lost in the forest and they can't figure out where to go because the forest is built as this natural labyrinth. And like, it's just, it's a fantastic scene because um, like, it's raining. Like if you've seen any Kurosawa, you know, lots of great things happen in the rain. Yeah. And, and how the use of weather is a powerful way to convey emotions in the movie. Mm -hmm. But it's just like raining, there's thunder, there's lightning. Mm -hmm. They're on horseback and they're going through the woods. And like, there's these great tracking shots of them just like riding through the woods. But like, we never see them quite clearly like the whole thing is shot from behind the trees. Mm-hmm. And so we just see the limbs and the branches and the vines. And it almost like has this like spider web quality, right? Which mm. is why I'm I'm like really disappointed in this HBO Max version that didn't call it like the spider web castle. Because I think mm. that that's done on purpose. The yeah. way it was shot. Yeah, that's interesting. I, you know, I didn't know that because I was watching the HBO Max version. Mm-hmm. but then like this scene it's just it's like frantic they're like we're lost we've been traveling this wood for hours i thought we knew this woods i thought we knew where we were going look there's a hoof print of ours that we just passed yeah kind of adding a supernatural quality mm-hmm. already mm-hmm. to what's going on and then they hear the spirit laugh and they're like spirits are stopping us from getting out of here <laughs> <laughs> even say that but then like this energy of this scene just comes like crashing to a stop like just like almost like a hard stop when we finally meet our spirit right in this it's just one spirit um like instead of the three instead of the three weird sisters yeah yeah um i always think it's interesting especially when you watch older movies how they convey like ghosts or spirits right because i mean it's a person right (laughs) like it's just another actor but i think like you said that the crashing to a halt and um other things about the scenery just really make it it feel i think pretty eerie still oh yeah oh yeah and i just love the way it lingers like Mm -hmm. it goes on forever where like it's a she but you don't necessarily know that right away yeah yeah almost seems genderless i guess adding a little bit maybe to the supernatural quality of like you're not really sure what's going on and she's just sitting there spinning that wheel and like singing her song and it goes on forever like i don't it's not forever but it just (laughs) feels like it because we were just like racing through the woods at such a high fast pace and now we've just stopped and they're just watching her for so long right sing this song and they're just like got this huge like look on their face of like being terrified so i love this movie uh that pays homage to the scene. And I didn't know that, 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 that it was this specific movie they were referencing. Um, but I like a, a Japanese director that directs animated films. Um, his name is Satoshi Kon, and he has a really amazing film called Millennium Actress, which is, I'm going to go off on a tiny tangent. I won't go too long. I could, but I won't. Um, but it's about a sort of a, a, an elderly reclusive, very famous actress uh 
from Japanese cinema and she had basically been the the front of, you know, a, a very very famous actress to a really impressive studio for decades. And then towards the end of her life she was reclusive and kind of hid herself away and the, in the film like somebody comes and wants to interview her kind of like one last time and it happens to be around the same time that this really famous cinema shuts down forever. So, you know, it would be like, I don't know, MGM or something like that. Right. And um, the movie is really interesting because it interweaves the character that is in the movie, the, the actress, it blends her movies and her real life to where it's like, you don't know which one's a movie and which one's really her life. It kind of blends through all of them. And it uses a lot of, you know, Japanese cinema, including a lot of Kurosawa influences. And there is this scene in the movie where there is like a spirit with a spinning wheel and everything. And she's talking to her and it's, it's really creepy. And in the movie, it's almost like the older version of her talking to herself and giving her like ominous warnings about her life. Anyway, very cool film. Check it out. Continue. <laughs> no, I, I think that's interesting. I'm, I'm not a big anime fan. I haven't seen that. Um, I think because you're a Kurosawa fan, you should see this, though. Because okay. um, it's probably referencing a specific actress. Like, it's not exactly her, but it's it's just really interesting because she lived for so long that she saw a bunch of, you know, political things that happened in Japan and also she became famous and like how the, the way those things intertwined it's just really interesting so i think you'd like it no i i, I i'll look into it <laughs> um yeah there are also like lots of like little shots like right after this that i think are fantastic they're not like big things to dwell on but like mm -hmm. on as they're going out of the forest after this like, it almost looks like it's in one shot, but I, I know it's probably not. It's foggy, so they can yeah. make, make edits where you really can't tell. Um, but they're, like, riding out of the forest, and they're lost again. And they're they're going this way one way, and they're going back the other way, and they're going this way. And there's really no musical score in this scene. I think mm -hmm. this movie does a great job of, like, knowing when to use its music and then knowing when to not use its music. And we just yeah. hear like the sounds of the world, the background. Like silence can be really powerful. And, you know, I think there's not a lot of silence in films, but when it's used the correct way, it's like, like you said, it can be, it can have a big impact. Yeah. You just hear the horse, the horse hooves, like pounding on the ground one way and then pounding on the floor the other way. And then the horses, the horses making their neigh noises. Right. And it's just like, mm -hmm. we are lost. We don't know where to go. And I just, it's a little thing, but like scenes like that, I think I find them really interesting, really exciting. Yeah, no, I, that's a good detail. And then, and then there's this other really small scene when like the first part of the prophecy in, in Macbeth is like, Hey, you're already the Thane, the Thane of Gloms, but you're, you're going to be named the Thane of Coder today. Right. That's like mm -hmm. the very, cause there's like, levels to the prophecy it's not just like one day you'll be the king right right why why would you believe that there are levels to it and the <laughs> very first thing is okay you're already the thane of gloms but now you're going to be named the thane of coder as well yeah. and then and they he turned the, the witches turned to banquo and say and you know good things will happen to you too and so when when they're like 
being recognized by their lord for driving back the rebellion at the beginning like mm-hmm. all all these prophets the first part is be- is come true like you you are now like the lord of castle one and you are now the lord of this other castle and like they both take their swords and they turn and walk away and like the looks on their face like this is like great acting where you don't have to like you know talk or 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 make a lot of loud movements you can just like use your facial expressions and when they turn and walk away they're like holy crap we're freaking out because everything she said so far is going is coming true well and also in a historical context it would be so unlikely right because they're samurai Mm -hmm. they're not typically gonna rise to the level of like a lord Mm-hmm. So it's like, wow, that's crazy. It was a crazy prophecy to begin with, and now, wow, that's actually happening. <laughs> yeah. No, so it's just little things like that, I think, that uh, make these, it's like the details that make it like a fantastic movie. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the the expressions, I think, stand up maybe even more to us because we are watching it in a different language, you know? So we're reading it and we're relying on their faces for context as well. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, that's a good point, right? We're not, we don't, we don't know exactly what they're saying. So we have to, we have to look at their body language more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like um, we've already really talked about like Lady Macbeth, but I mean, all of those scenes where she is, like I feel bad for calling them like not by their characters' names in this movie, but like <laughs> the okay. scene where Lady <laughs> Macbeth is manipulating Macbeth into like committing murder, right? And she's just sitting there. She's very stoic, and yeah, um, yeah. And she just she just finds the way to like um, to say the right thing to get him to do this. And then you know she walks out like really slow, as I said before, to grab the dagger. And she comes back and like, there's no music throughout the entire scene again. Like the musical score is just off. And then there's this like one really loud, really loud, almost like scream type thing, which is like the moment that the murder takes place. But it's just really quick. And then it all cuts off again, the music. And he walks back and, you know, just terrified of what he's done. Just like in the, just like in the play, Macbeth is really like, like shook when he commits the murder as i think you should be yeah <laughs> but well, Lady it's Macbeth such a slow is, build it is it, it really is like she starts off with you know okay they he happens to be here so he's like vulnerable you know you could get even more power if you know say we had like an heir and he's like i don't but she's like i do actually and it's just like things are like falling into place to where he almost feels like he can't do anything but kill him you know Mm -hmm. but i think she gets there so slowly with how she introduces each fact and then she's like you know the guards could be drunk they're they already drink and then if we poison them you know and then we could poison them or you know so that they're drunk and then you could do this and da 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 and like this is the only opportunity to do that because like when else would they be here? And, you know, like she just kind of does it so slowly. It almost makes you feel like I'm trying to find the right way to say this without it sounding crazy, but it's like it, you, you can understand. You almost feel like you're in his shoes. Like 
it sounds like a person that wouldn't have normally killed someone being convinced, you know, and I think that's what's kind of scary about the scenario and what's so intense about it. And then to add to that tension, you know, like you said, she gives him the sword and then he goes off and she just sits there. And it's, it seems like she's kind of also realizing like, wow, I really, that worked. Like he's going to do this now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she's and- sitting there with dread. And then it's so much more powerful than if we even saw him do it. Then when he comes back, he's got blood on him and he's just in shock. Like, I can't believe I actually did that. Like they just do such a good job of making you feel like these are two people that wouldn't have normally done this. Mm-hmm. So and- it just feels so messed up that it happened yeah and and that's the way it's written in the play too like i think it's you know where the murder happens off screen or off stage um and and he comes back and i think that is in a sense more terrifying it's almost like when you're watching a horror movie and you don't necessarily see the killer don't necessarily Mm -hmm. see what's happening but everything like oh they grab him and they pull him off off screen or something right your mind can almost make up something that's more terrifying I, I agree. Right. And it's just, you know, yeah, I, I didn't even think about that. But what you were saying is like, holy crap, I actually convinced him to do this. I wasn't sure I could do it. And it, it happened. Yeah. And I think it really comes back to haunt her later. Oh, oh, yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I mean, the, the movie really then hits all of like the play's highlights. It, it uh, yes. doesn't do every scene, but like there's you know after he becomes the king or the lord of spiderweb castle i'm gonna call it spiderweb castle not forest castle do it (laughs) (laughs) um you know they're having a banquet right and and um mickey isn't there mickey however the however it's said um and then Macbeth has this hallucination of of the ghost of the the friend that he's killed Right, and I love that part. Very, he's like <laughs> freaking out. He he sees him once. Okay, it's fine. Calm down. Everyone, sit down. I'm a little drunk. It's okay. We're good. Sit back down. Don't leave. Enjoy your time. And then he sees that again, and he's just like freaks out, and he pulls his sword, and he runs over, and he's stabbing the air, and you can see everybody just in the background is like absolutely terrified. Like, what is going on here? His wife's all like, oh, he's drunk. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Like, but yeah, it's like his guilt is just driving him crazy at this point, you know, mm-hmm. and it's making him like, then, then he has that like freak out where he's like, everyone's against me. You all want to, and it's like, well, yeah, once you betray someone so completely, I mean, that plants the idea in your mind, like who's, who's, who's to say that's not going to happen to you. Yeah. But like, you know? like the idea of being like haunted by the ghosts of the the people that you've wronged, that's like a big thing in Shakespeare. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like yeah. Brutus is visited by the ghost of Julius Caesar on the eve of, mm-hmm. of the battle. Um, Richard III is visited by a bunch of ghosts, like just in rapid succession, one after the other right before the final battle at the end of Richard the third. It's, it's just a really big, like trademark like, ghosts exist in Shakespeare's world. Right. 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 Yeah. And then at the end of this scene, it's like everyone's left, but then the camera slowly turns and you see like the little waiting boy or whatever, like the server mm-hmm. who's like in the, in the other corner from where everyone else was. And he's like, like, 
don't don't see me please don't see me because he couldn't get out <laughs> he's like terrified when the camera just turns over and you see him i i i know that shouldn't be funny but i kind of laughed when you thought everyone was gone <laughs> and he's still like hiding in the corner poor kid yeah poor kid no i mean and then Obviously, we've got, you know, the scene where Lady Macbeth then reaches her, like, breaking point where she, um, you know, she's she's basically all the bad actions that have happened to her are now coming back, right? And she's got mm-hmm. the blood on her hand. That damn spot. Why won't it come off? And she's trying to wash her, her hands off all the blood, but, like, he hears like a scream from way off in the castle, right? And he goes and he sees all like the serving women like running away. And he's mm-hmm. like, what's going on in there? And he gets there and she's like, she doesn't even have any water in the bowl. She's just got like an empty bowl in front of her. And yeah. she's just there like pretending, or not pretending, she probably thinks there is. And she's dipping her hands into the water, the water, right? And she's wiping it off. And I... I really love the way that she's not, she's still not like hysterical in a sense, right? She's still very yeah. reserved and very calm. And she's like, why can't I wash the blood off my hands? Why can't? And I just, I really appreciate the way they portrayed this version of the character. Mm-hmm. Just And she a- ends up having, a losing her child too. She does. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. that was part of like the, you know, sort of monkey's paw prediction of him having a son but you know it's still born mm-hmm. yeah it was like rotting inside of her just like the way they said the castle mm-hmm. is starting to rot yeah mm-hmm. it's like it's tainted you know everything is tainted by their evil actions yeah and then like when we learn of the the attack coming in um washizu he has to go and visit the 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 spirit again in the forest and of course it's got a rain and it's got a thunder right just like it always does at all those great moments yeah and and she tells him more of the prophecy she's like you're not going to lose a single battle until the forest moves towards your castle and he's like how does a forest move towards to the castle like that doesn't like how does that happen of course i'm (laughs) not going to lose a battle um, but then this is something like little details in this movie that I appreciate from the play that you might not necessarily pick up on uh-huh. is like in this scene in the play, Macbeth visits the weird sisters and they conjure up like three apparitions, like three, mm-hmm. three creatures that all tell Macbeth one thing. And like after our spirit here tells Mac- tells Washizu like, Hey, you know, you're no you're not gonna lose a battle to the forest moves. She then like transforms into like three different characters, three different people who all tell Macbeth something. And it's like, oh, there's a reason why we did three characters here, because it's the three little visions that that the weird sister mm. conjure up. And so like little details like that that you might not even notice, right, if you're not familiar with Macbeth that really that really make this film interesting yeah that's really really cool i did not notice that so that's awesome Mm -hmm. and then i guess i guess you know the only other scene would be like the ending the arrow scene yeah 
which we've already Where it all comes crashing about. down it does it all <laughs> comes crashing down um you know uh the forest moves the forest does move it comes towards them yeah like but uh, but one little thing like in the play we know we know that the forest is moving because we see scenes where they're like cut down the trees and move toward us but there's like this little scene where like the guards are watching at night and they hear like chopping noises and they're like what's going on and one of them's like i don't know maybe they're building a fence but it's like they're chopping down the trees, but like we don't necessarily know that's what they're doing. If you're not familiar yeah. with the play, you don't know that's what you're doing. So I almost kind of like the reveal in the movie where like all of a sudden the forest starts moving. You're like, wait, why is the forest moving? Like because <laughs> we see these supernatural elements. And so you wonder, like, is this something supernatural happening? Right, right. Right. But then he, you know. All of the all of his soldiers essentially turn on him, and they start. There's one one arrow, and then there's a bunch more, and this scene goes on for like a long time where they're just yeah. like like hundreds of arrows are just being shot at him. Some of them hit him, some of them land right in front of him, and he turns back the other way, and he's just like freaking out and scared. And they just the arrows just keep coming, just keep shooting right at him. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. There's like no way he's going to survive that one. <laughs> no. And then finally he gets one right in the neck. And and I really I really like this ending like more almost more than I like the ending of the play. As much as I like the play because in the play, you know, Macbeth is just killed by by Macduff or the the character that he like tries to pin the murder on like when he kills mm-hmm. King Duncan. Um but I like it more that like his entire army turns on him here. It's not just like one person then getting revenge on Macbeth for for the murder, but it's like everyone realizes how terrible this person has been and all yeah. of the terrible things he's done. I'm not necessarily saying that justifies, you know, killing him, but I like the idea of everyone realizes how bad he is and we just yeah. have to stop this guy. He's truly going to lose everything. Yes, he's truly going to lose everything. So it's like, yeah, you were in charge, but for like a minute. <laughs> it's like, the again, the prophecy had all these different bad parts to it that were not conveyed to him. Yeah. And like characters in the film, too, tried to convince him like, hey, you know, basing every move you make off a spirit you saw is probably a bad idea. Like no no don't do it so like he had plenty of time and then he's had all these dis- these outbursts in front of everybody i mean he just gave everyone so much ammo to turn on him yeah <laughs> by but, the end. but i mean even if you even if you even pay even a little bit closer attention when they come out of the woods after the first prophecy like they're like they stop because they're exhausted and then she's and he says to his friend there like the 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 thing that she said was going to happen I've already dreamed of that happening. Hmm. So, like he already wanted it in a sense. Gotcha. And then, and then the friends like, we dream about what we want. Who wouldn't want to be Lord of a big castle like that? Yeah. And so like, you know, was he really just following the prophecy? Was he doing it because of that? Or was he doing it because he already actually wanted it? And this was just maybe like a reason for him to, to take those actions. Yeah, and like, um, yeah, and like, I guess 
I think this is you're referencing to like when the spirit is like, I know what you really want. Like, doesn't she kind of say that too? Where she's yeah, like, she your desires. Something. Yeah, because like they have they have that conversation, and then also the spirit kind of says, because he's like, no, I I'm I'm loyal to my lord, and blah blah blah, and she's like, but what do you really want? You know, a, a little bit like, almost like I see through that though. That's not who you are. So kind of implying, like you said, that he's like always been bad. Mm-hmm. He just needed an opportunity, an excuse. Yeah, that's fair. Yep. Well, um, any any other scenes that we haven't covered yet? Uh, I mean, I don't think so. I think you know, yeah, I think, I think we got the main ones. The movie hits all of like the main plot points of the play. Yes, all of the big things, <laughs> right? It's definitely an adaptation of the play. Yeah. Well, I guess that brings me to my last couple of questions. So number one, you know, we've been kind of discussing this whole time, but if you had to summarize, what is it about Throne of Blood that you keep coming back to? Like, why why is this one of your favorite Akira Kurosawa films? Uh, I mean, well, I'm a big fan of Shakespeare. I, I mean, I, I really love Shakespeare. I love reading Shakespeare. I love watching plays live. I love watching movies that are based on them. Uh you know, I think the the themes are timeless, right? Yeah. Some people some people will argue that like it's not Shakespeare if it's doesn't have the language, right? The poetry. But I think to me, like the story is what's more important. And I agree. People are trying to say, like, well, is Shakespeare really relevant in our world this today? Right? Four hundred years later, are these stories still relevant? And I think absolutely they are right especially a story like Macbeth with mm-hmm. somebody who wants who wants power right and I think we see that by hey look they just made a new version of, of Macbeth right that just came out right I haven't, Gosh, I haven't I seen, see that I haven't so seen bad. it yet but <laughs> I yeah. can't wait to see it but yeah and I just and the fact that you know it's made by Akira Kurosawa who is just right he know he's he's a, he's a genius behind the camera he knows like how to frame a shot, whether it's like mm-hmm. shooting behind the branches or or how to shoot the arrow scene at the end or to, just knowing when to make the right choices. And and I like the fact that this movie is probably, it's not something like Seven Samurai. It's not yeah. a big action movie. There really aren't yeah. any action scenes in this, right? It would be very easy to put some in, right? Mm-hmm. But I think I love the fact that there are not those scenes. No, it's more about the drama. And to to kind of build off what you're saying about Shakespeare, um, you know, Shakespeare wrote stories that were predating his time, right? And so, you know, a lot of the ways they're portrayed were in different ways, like, you know, different costumes. And that's kind of translated in today. That's why, you know, like one of my favorite times I saw Macbeth, I think, it was like set in World War II. So they were using like Shakespearean language, you know, they were using the play, but they put it in the context of, you know, a more modern day. Um, And so that's what's so cool about Shakespeare's plays. His stories were so timeless. You could put them in any time. And and some of that is because, you know, he was building off of stories that were already there, right? Mm -hmm. Previous to him. So yeah, I, I, I would, I would challenge anyone saying that they're not relevant because they clearly are. And, you know, um, whenever you're appreciate something like storytelling, go back to the original, go back to the basics, you know? And I think this movie does a good job of, of reinterpreting that 
in a different way, but it, it feels so natural to the to the scenery because the the stories were meant to be universal. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get the poetry. You're not going to get the double, double toil and trouble by the, by the <laughs> yeah. weird sisters. You're not going to get the the tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow speech, which ends with like a tale of sound and a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Like you're not going to get mm-hmm. that language, but I think, I think the story still is, is what I care more about and what you're able to tell in this different setting. And that's, that's what keeps me coming back to it. Mm, yeah. And how would you pitch this to someone that's never seen this movie before? Um, well, I would say it's, Shakespeare, it's Macbeth with samurais directed by like, Kur- by Kurosawa. Like yeah, yes, like what more yes, do you want? Yes, and yes, right? <laughs> yeah. All of those things. <laughs> yeah, agreed. I think you said it perfectly. I have nothing to add to that. It's just this should be enough for you to yes, see it. Yes, that, re- um, that really should be. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, really appreciated having you back. Uh, where can people find you? Um nowhere really um <laughs> uh yeah i'm not i'm not on social media um uh you know chase and i we record a podcast he meant i'm sure he mentioned it um you know we talk about star trek uh these are the voyages we've been talking for like god it feels like since august doing like weekly recaps because there's been so much wow, new, dedication. new star trek well there's been so much new star trek I know then. I'm so gonna, behind I gotta get on board <laughs> and it's, it's, it's gonna keep going like I think until like June so it's gonna be like almost a full year of new episodes by the time it's done so you can check out wow. that at these are the voyages um and you know there might be some there might be something coming soon where Ooh. which I'm not necessarily ready to talk about just yet but something okay. about about um my love of Shakespeare that may be coming. Oh, great. In a, it will be a good tie in. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, want to thank you so much for, for taking time out of your day to talk about this movie with me. I'm so glad you picked it. So glad we talked about it and you're going to have to think of future ones to come on the show and discuss, but appreciate having you. Definitely. Definitely.